You can turn once again in your Bibles to the book of Titus. We're going to be uh, closing out this book, looking at Titus chapter 3, uh, verses 8 to 15. This uh, is, I guess for me, this is the first book I've ever had the privilege of uh, teaching through, and so it's been uh, my joy to have done that with you for this summer, and I pray that uh, it's been a blessing to you, even as it's been a blessing for me to be able to study God's Word in this way. It is a wonderful thing to be able to look into the Word of God. And we're looking at Titus 3, 8 to 15. And let's stand together as we read, read God's Word. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. And would God graciously bless uh, the reading, the teaching, and the hearing of his word tonight. You may be seated. Uh, one of my favorite courses when I was in high school was Leadership 11, uh, probably because it was exceptionally easy and also fairly fun. Uh, Leadership 11 was probably one of my favorite high school courses. And uh, one of the highlights of the year in Leadership 11 was we did a, day, a whole day field trip uh, to go to this canoe expedition place where uh, the students in the class, we got in one of those like 12-seater canoes and we were going to paddle all together, something like 15 miles. And this was going to be our, our, our whole day experience. But sadly, halfway through, we got hit by the storm. And so the rain started pouring down. It was pretty cold, super windy. And so the guides on this expedition, they gave us uh, two options. They said either we actually have like a sail we can jimmy rig and let the wind take us back to our starting point. Or they said we can knuckle down and press on and see if we can make it to our destination. And so much to my delight, uh, we all agreed that we're going to press on. We're going to try to make it to the very end. So we put on our garbage bags uh, to block the rain and we started paddling. And I distinctly remember my friend David he was sitting in the front of the canoe, and it was his job to, uh, to, to give us the count, to keep us all paddling in time. And uh, the fun part was that he taught us all to count in Chinese as we did it. So we, we paddled going E, R, Sun, and so on, as we paddled together. And even though we should have been miserable, the weather was horrible, it was by all accounts a terrible situation, we were not miserable at all. No one even complained. Why? Because we were focused. We were focused on the mission ahead of us, and we were focused on that message we were hearing, that uh, David's voice as we counted together, 
And what we did is we focused on the count. As we focused on the destination, it gave us a, a compelling, a motivating momentum as we stroked in unity. And this is a picture of what God has for us as a church. We need a unifying focus. And the unifying focus that God has given us is a focus on the message of the gospel, but then also the mission of good works. And that's been the major theme in the book of Titus. How a focus of holding fast to the gospel helps compel a life of good works. A focus on the mission and the message. And we need to learn such a focus. This, this dual focus, focus, as it were, on the good news and good works. Because it's so easy for us to get distracted. Uh, we're so quickly blown off course. And when we lose this focus, we fall into what Pastor Mike was teaching on this morning. A self-focused, complaining, grumbling, arguing, distraction. And Satan would love nothing more than to sift this church like wheat, to tear us apart, to divide us. He doesn't have to just come in and uh, send a tornado through the building. Uh, Satan would be just as happy to leave us distracted, to let us become divided, that this church might just be not effective, to be unfruitful. He'd be happy for us to continue meeting if we would just be ineffective by letting go of the focus on the message of the gospel and the mission of good works. And so we want to look at these threats tonight, how distractions and divisions can derail us from the focus of what God has called us to as a church. We need to be aware of these threats and recognize that there is a real danger of, through distraction and division, becoming an ineffectual, unfruitful church versus being a church that is focused and fruitful. A church that holds fast the good news that practices good works and bears good fruit. That's what we're looking at. So first, let's look at what it might look like for us to be distracted and divided. Take a look at verse 8. This saying is trustworthy. Uh, we looked at this last week. That's referring to that gospel, that power-packed gospel sentence we looked at in verses 4 to 7. This trustworthy gospel saying, and I want you, Titus, to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. We're saying, Titus, keep insisting on the gospel. Impress the gospel so that the people might practice good works. And the end result of that is that it's excellent. And this is profitable for the world. It's a good witness. But in contrast to this, he says, but avoid. So not insist on now, avoid foolish controversies genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. The good news and good works is excellent and profitable. These dissensions, these controversies, it says, are worthless and unprofitable. They're totally vain and they do no one any good. And the church at Crete was rife with this sort of stuff. If you remember back to chapter 1, we looked at the, the qualities of the false teachers that had infected this church. Judaizers who added to the gospel the need to, to observe the Jewish law in strictness and in ritual. And even as they focused on the strict keeping 
of the external ceremonies of the Jewish law, they were living carnal and worldly lives. This hypocrisy. And they were vying for power in the church, seeking to get ahead, doing it for shameful gain. And the things they were focused on were things like these. They, were in, they just care, loved foolish controversies. Silly things to get all worked up about. Things like genealogies. Uh, what's your lineage? What's your status? Where do you come from? Oh, I have a better status than you. Things that caused dissensions. Quarrels about the law. They, they would all pick their favorite uh, teacher, their favorite rabbi. I'd be like, oh no, I interpret it according to this guy. He's my guy. Oh no, this guy had the right interpretation. And just all this finagling and vain jangling uh, was just what they were all about. And Paul's saying, this is so profitless. It's so vain. This does not lead to godly edification. It was exactly the opposite. Chapter 1 said that this was upsetting whole families. Really causing division in the church. All these debates. You see, these false teachers had the total wrong focus. They weren't focused on the gospel message. They weren't focused on the good works mission. They weren't producing good fruits. We're actually told at the end of chapter 1, the conclusion is that these false teachers are useless for any good work. They're not even able to live a life of good works in any way. And the result of this is that it was discrediting their own profession of faith. It says they profess to know God but deny him by their works. And all furthermore, it was bringing disrepute on the church. They were living in a terrible way before the world bringing the church into disrepute. They lost their unifying focus on what really matters. And this is a danger for us too. Uh, we don't, we're, we're probably not going to get divided by discussing genealogies or uh, discussions about the best way to do um, the, the hand-washing of the Jewish rituals or uh, what foods we should eat that are kosher. But no, we're still, we still can fall prey to losing the focus on the message and the mission. We can fall prey to losing our focus on God's gospel, his worship, and then our need to love our neighbors and to live in good works. And if you lose focus on the upward and you lose focus on the outward, what's left but the inward? All that's left is me. What are my preferences? What are my interpretations? What are my ideas? What, what do I want to see happen? What would I like best? That's what you're left with when you lose focus. And this is a temptation for us. And I think we often fall prey to this because we struggle often with a wrong view of what our church actually is. I, fear, I think we often think of these church gatherings and our church life kind of as like a restaurant. And we are uh, the customers. And we come into the church like you'd come into a restaurant and we think, ah, what's on the menu tonight? Oh, okay, uh, th this is the chef's special. I, I wonder how he's going to prepare that. And uh, the, the, the food comes delivered and, and you think, hmm, do I like this? Is this tasty? Um, would I have ordered this myself? And we get consumed with just, is the church feeding me? Is it meeting my needs? Uh, do I like the ambiance? Do I like this building we're meeting in? Do I like these people that are around? Um, maybe uh, the restaurant's like, oh, well, at least they have crayons for the kids and uh, some drawings on the people, but if only they had a play place. 
for the kids. If only they had seniors discount or, or, or a kid's menu. It's all wrapped up on our preferences. And that's not at all the picture the Bible presents of the church. If we were to use that reference analogy, it's much more like that we are all together in the kitchen, seeking to learn to, to, to cook and prepare the sort of life that is a pleasing aroma to the Lord God. We want all to be seeking to prepare a heavenly sacrifice of worship that will please God. And then to take what we've learned together, what we've sought to stir up together, and, to, and for us to bring that out and serve it to a hungry world. That they might smell the aroma of Christ on us. That they might be attracted to the source, of, to the one who satisfies all hunger. Church isn't primarily about what we get out of it. It's about being equipped to serve, to worship God, and to see others come to worship and serve him. And if we could have this sort of perspective, it would go a long ways towards helping curb the me-focus preference orientation that we so quickly fall into. Uh, Sadly, too often, as John Calvin said, we become addicted to our personal wants, addicted to what we want church to look like, how we want it to be run. However, if we have a proper focus on the message of the gospel, the mission we have of good works to love God and neighbor, that helps provide a unifying focus a compelling, forward-looking focus as we seek to be the people God has called us to be. Now, why are these sort of self-focused distractions so dangerous in the church? Well, it's because, like we said, they can derail our mission. And therefore, it's imperative that Paul also tells Titus how to deal with people who particularly work to cause these sorts of divisions in the church. Look at verse 10. Paul writes to Timothy, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He's self-condemned. The divisive man needs to be warned and dealt with. And what, what do divisive people do? What sort of person is this? It's someone who their personal preferences and ideas become so big that everything they think is like a gospel issue. It's the biggest deal. The, the, the one point that is cared about most, the one issue of style or program, uh, it becomes an all-consuming issue that then, in order to make the change you want, or perhaps in order to halt the change you wish to stop, you start recruiting people onto your team. And it becomes basically like a church tug-of-war. We have the, we need to change people, versus the, make things stay the same people. And uh, I don't know, boys and girls, if you've ever been to one, like a big tug-of-war at a camp, you know how there's always like that one strongest person on the very end, like the anchor? And often in the church there is people who are particularly uh, filled with a divisive spirit who work hard to pull, to recruit people onto their side. A divisive spirit uh, that Kent Hughes writes how divisive persons, they frequent the debates of the church. And as a result, the same voices and personalities tend to appear over and over again, even though the issues change. No matter what it is, this person's will needs to be done. A divisive spirit. And this is a sinful work of the flesh. 
Listen to how Paul writes about these sins of divisiveness in Galatians chapter 5. Listen to Galatians 5, 19 to 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. As I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Unrepentant divisiveness, unrepentant dissension, unrepentant division actually disqualifies one from the kingdom of God, shows that the heart of the gospel is not actually in you. This is a serious warning against this sin, a serious warning against a divisive spirit. Therefore, people who are acting in this way, showing forth evidences of this, need to be warned. Why? Because their soul is in danger. To warn them once, to warn them twice, but then at some point, to have nothing more to do with them. Knowing that this type of person is warped, sinful, and self-condemned. They don't even need someone else to condemn them. They've condemned themselves by their actions. And there is grace in the warning, seeking to win them back, but eventually have nothing more to do with them. And this can be interpreted in one of two ways, and I think uh, both are in view. Um, For a lesser matter, this this idea of having nothing more to do with them um, could just as well be translated to refuse them or to avoid them. And particularly, this might mean in a lesser matter that these sort of people need to be taken out of influence. Perhaps they're leading a study group, perhaps they're an elder, and if they're one who's prone to this sort of arguing and division, it's uh, refuse them any influence in the church. Stop arguing with them. Don't let them have a platform to continue to try to present their own issues. But it can get more serious. If it's persisted in, if the warnings aren't heeded, this can become something that arises to the level of the highest form of church discipline in excommunication. Having someone actually be cut off from the church, it's a serious matter. And why does God take this so seriously? Because divisiveness derails what God is trying to do with his church. He wants his people to shine like a city on a hill. Like we heard this morning, when you live without grumbling or arguing, debating among ourselves, we're shining. But if we, we let ourselves to just get enclosed and focused on one another, it's like we've put blinds on all the windows and there's no more light coming out, no more light coming in. Divisive persons need to be dealt with seriously. Uh, It's kind of like how uh, back in the days when there were still uh, pirate ships and those sorts of things, uh, the the era of uh, mutiny, when someone tried to take over a ship and change its course, was always dealt with in the most severe measures. Uh, Ferdinand Magellan, who was uh, on his mission to try to circumnavigate the globe, he dealt with mutineers, people trying to take over from him three different times. And one time they actually got a hold of three out of his five ships. And through fighting, he was able to win back control of the crew. And, and the guy that started this mutiny named Juan de Cartanga, he uh, was marooned. So that is, he was left stranded on an island. And why did 
Magellan do this? Because he needed to get rid of this divisive spirit lest the entire mission be jeopardized. The entire reason they had been sent out uh, was totally compromised. And so it is in the church. Uh, to, to use a, a biblical language, to remove the leaven before it leavens and spreads through the whole lump. Uh, this is no small matter. And Paul summarizes this really well, I think, in Romans 16, verses 17 to 18. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. We're called to avoid such people who just serve their own appetites, want church to cater to all their own personal preferences, and will do whatever it takes to get what they want. But we don't just also need to watch out to avoid these people. We need to watch out for this in our own hearts, don't we? We so quickly fall prey to this customer mentality. Uh, is what I want happening? Are the things available that I would like to be available? And we can so allow our small particular preferences to become all-consuming passions. No, my issue is the most important issue. Why aren't you guys focusing on this? Why aren't we going this direction? Why aren't we offering this? It's so easy to let just the things we wish for and could have good, honest, genteel discussions about become matters for war, uh, matters for fighting that really ought not be matters for fighting. Instead, uh, we ought to be people that are guarding our hearts to not allow any root of bitterness or divisiveness to spring up and cause trouble, but to be people instead who are so focused on the good news message, so focused on the good works mission, that as we are looking upward and outward, we barely have time to look inward at, at just whether things are going the exact way we want. These focuses, we need to uh, just keep ever before us. It's all about the gospel. It's about living a life of godliness. And if we could stay focused on that, we could live fruitful lives. We almost need to, as it were, run um, every personal issue, every personal preference that we have. Not that it's wrong to have them, but we need to run it almost through uh, like, a, like a grammar and spell check. But, but the grammar check of the gospel and of good works. Uh, is this really a gospel issue? If, if not, maybe I should temper my feelings about it. Is, is this really leading to go godliness and good works and edification? If not, let's just take heed to ourselves. And this, this was a problem in Crete. Titus was charged with going in order to, to combat the de dissenting errors of the false teachers and to establish godly leadership. That was the main mission Paul had actually given Titus. He, he said, hey, I'm going to leave you in Crete as I leave um, to set in order what, what remains and appoint elders, people that will be godly and well-focused on the doctrine that produces godliness, the, the sound belief that produces healthy behavior. And so uh, Paul ends by giving Titus some more personal instructions on this matter. He says in verse 12, When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. So Titus is super valuable to Paul, and so Paul wants Titus to come as soon as he can to keep helping him on his mission, but he knows that the churches in Crete still need some really good apostolic oversight because things are still a mess. 
So he says, hey, I'm sending Artemis and Tychicus to you, and when they come, you can be replaced and come back and help me. And, And he adds furthermore, in verse 13, do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way, see that they lack nothing. It seems likely that Zenos and Apollos had actually delivered this letter to Titus from Paul. And so now that they had completed their task, delivered the letter, uh, Titus was supposed to make sure that the church supported them and well supplied them so that they could go back do the mission work. Again, a focus on the gospel, these men being gospel emissaries as it were, the people were to rise up with a focus on we want to support these men, support these people who are bringing the gospel message to other parts of the world. And so after Paul gives Titus these personal instructions, he again reiterates his heart for the Cretan church. Look at verse 14. His final command for them. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful, to to focus on good works that they might bear good fruit, to be focused and fruitful, not distracted and divided. Uh, He repeats the language we saw in verse 8, that they should be carefully devoted to good works, to be devoted to something, to have their hearts set upon it, their mind intent upon it. And he says, he, he gives here actually a further explanation of what these good works are that we're talking about. You know, we have used this word a lot, good works, what are we talking about? Well, one aspect is what he says here, it's helping cases of urgent need. So if you wonder, what things am I doing in my life that are good works? What should I be doing that are good works? Help people that need help. Do things that are a benefit to others, seeking to meet people's needs. Not just because you have to, because you're a parent or an employee, but because you want to, out of love in your heart for others. This is what a heart of good works is. It's an other's focus. It's the practice of love for neighbor. And he says, let our people learn this. We need to have this drilled into us because, again, we know that we're naturally selfish. We're naturally self-focused. We naturally look to our own interests before the interests of others. And therefore, we need to learn. That's actually the word for discipleship. We need to become discipled in the way of Jesus, to practice his way of life of selfless, sacrificial service. Selfless, sacrificial service. Because we don't want to be unfruitful, do we? And this life focused on need-meeting good works is a life that glorifies God and bears good fruit in this world, witnesses to the beauty of God. And after all, this life of good works, this is God's intention and design in the gospel. If you remember what chapter 2, verse 14 said, chapter 2, verse 14 of Titus reminds us that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus gave himself. He took on our flesh. He bore our sin. He died our death for us to redeem us, to buy us back from slavery to sin, but also to purify and renew us to be a people who belong to him, who are zealous for good works. You see, Jesus came on the gospel mission to send us out, to continue a mission of showing love to the world, of holding forth the word of light. And so we see here that the gospel message and the good works mission are intimately connected. The design of the gospel was to create a new people who would be zealous for good works, 
good works that God prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. And so together, the gospel message, the good works mission, provide a dual focus that help keep us on the right path. Uh, again, if we were thinking of, if you were on a pirate ship and wanted to chart the right path and you had one of those old telescopes, you have two lenses, one at the front, one at the back, and together they give you perspective. As we look at life through the lens, the focus of the gospel, the focus of godliness, they come together and they give us the direction, a unifying mission for us that compels and motivates us to keep going, to paddle together in unison because we know what we're after and we know who we're listening to. And this common commitment to the gospel and to godliness is ours along with all who call upon the name of the Lord. It connects us with the church throughout the world and throughout history. And so because of that, Paul can say in verse 15 to the church in Crete, all who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. All God's people are connected by our common commitment to the faith, to the good news. The good news that Jesus died and rose again and ascended into heaven sitting at the right hand of God, reigning as king over all things. We're united in the faith. And the faith, when we are brought into it by the work of the Spirit, it produces love for one another. Love is another way of talking about good works. Good works are all acts of love. And so he says you can greet those who love us in the faith. Our faith in God also brings about in our hearts great love for one another. And all of this, faith, love, are a work of God's grace. And to remind them again that, they, that God's people need grace every single day, Paul ends the letter saying, grace be with you all. It's all of grace. It was grace that the Lord sent the Lord Jesus for us. It's grace that the Spirit came to open our hearts, to give us faith. It's grace that we've been sanctified. It's grace that we've been given this word of God, this instruction. It's grace that we've been given a church family to walk side by side with. And this grace that we look at at the very beginning, this grace that began our faith will be with us to work in us everything God will have for us until that day when we see him in glory. Everything is of grace. And we, need, we will need grace every day if we're going to live this sort of life of practical godliness that we've seen in this whole book. Elders in the church need grace to seek to exhibit those character qualities befitting their office. Families need grace. Older men and women, younger men and women, employees, we need grace in every single area of our lives. Because God has intention for us in, in them all. There's no neutral thing we do. We're doing everything for the glory of God. In our civic behavior, in our interaction with people in society, we need God's grace because we want to be people that adorn the gospel, that show throughout all our actions that God's news, God's mission, that's the beautiful life. That's the good life. There is truly, there's no better way to live than to live in the ways of God. No more joy-giving way to live. No more peace-filled way to live. Boys and girls, I hope you remember that forever. As you grow up, to remember that no matter what anyone else tells you, what you see other people doing, there's no better way to live than to live for God. Because that's the best news. And it also, we have a good works to follow after. 
And it brings joy to us, even as it glorifies God and helps others. That's what we're called to. That's what we learn in this book of Titus, how doctrine accords um, with godliness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace you've shown us in giving us the instructions we find in the book of Titus. We thank you for how we've been reminded of the gospel, reminded of what Jesus has done for us, how he gave himself for us to redeem us, but also to renew us. How the grace that saves is also grace that trains us. And Lord, we do ask that we will live more and more as your people, that you will keep us united, focused, intent on the gospel, intent on the call you've given us to show forth love and good deeds, to proclaim your goodness from day to day. Lord, and in this, would you protect us? Would you keep us from a self-focus? Keep us from um, considering only our own needs and preferences and interests. And let us look to the interests of others, but especially the interests of your kingdom, that we would be a kingdom-minded people, a kingdom mission people, ones focused on your message, who love, love for uh, others to hear the gospel, who love to hear the gospel ourselves, and who long to walk in greater conformity to the image of Christ, who long to do more good, who long to be of more service and profit. Use us, we pray, O Lord. We give ourselves to you again as living sacrifices, that you would work us, that you would change us until that day when we see you in glory. We pray all these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.